pray before Drew comes up and shares with us. God, thank you so much for the opportunity we have to be here together this morning. I just pray that you would be with Drew as he brings your word. Lord God, may our hearts be open. May our minds be open. Prepare us, Lord God, for what you want to say to all of us this morning. We are so excited about this coming year. We're so excited for what you're going to do in and through us, Lord, as a church. And we'll be sure to give you all the praise and all the glory for everything you're going to do in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Last night, I'm sure some of you watched the football game between Texas Christian University and Oregon. It was 31 to nothing at halftime. And then, of course, Texas Christian came back to win the game 47 to 41 in overtime. And, um, yeah, if you went to bed, you missed that. Um, But um, one of the things that happened at halftime was that Gary Patterson, who's the head coach of the Texas Christian team, changed his shirt. He was wearing a black shirt, and he changed to a purple shirt. And when they asked him, you know, why did you change shirt? And he said, well, obviously the black shirt wasn't working. And so he went with the purple shirt. And uh, I can't imagine what was said in the locker room at halftime that inspired the players to come back from a deficit of 31 points. Now, if you're an Oregon Ducks fan, you're saying, well, their quarterback got hurt, and so that was the difference. But here was a stat I saw online. It, uh, someone said that 1,624 uh, 1, teams have trailed 31 by 31 or more points, and none of those teams ever came back until last night. So if you're Oregon, you're feeling pretty good about it. But something must have been said at halftime that really worked for Texas Christian to get them out from underneath that burden of a 31-point deficit. And sometimes in our Christian lives, we we feel like we're 31 points behind, and we need something to, to kind of lift our spirits, to encourage us, to try to get us to a place where we are able to say, you know what, I, I think I can come from behind and win this thing. So this morning, what I would like for us to do is uh, turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 9 and learn about what we can be encouraged with that will help us overcome these things. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus and his disciples have experienced a number of things together. One of the first things in Mark chapter 8 that they talk about is Jesus feeding the 5,000. Uh, what a marvelous miracle it must have been for the disciples to see Uh, those loaves and fishes of the boy being turned into enough to feed so many and then baskets of food left over. Uh, What an amazing thing for them in Mark chapter 8 to to see Bartimaeus, the blind man, being healed. Uh, What a beautiful thing it must have been for them to observe and to watch. In Mark chapter 8, they also uh, learn and listen as Peter declares Jesus to be the Messiah. And Jesus says, that's exactly who I am. I'm the Son of God, the Messiah. What a marvelous thing for them to to hear. But then things begin to turn a little bit in Mark chapter 8 when Jesus says to them, I need to die, to suffer and to die. And Peter really got upset about that. He got so upset that Jesus had to take him aside and say, get behind me, Satan. You've got Satan's plan. My plan is to go to the cross. And Peter's like, no, that's not part of this deal. We gave up our business, our fishing business, to follow you, and now you're going to die? That really upset Peter. And then as though things couldn't get more heavy for the disciples, Jesus begins to deliver a message in Mark chapter 8, beginning at verse 34. He says to them, you must deny yourself, you must take up my cross, and you must follow me. 
feeling a burden, feeling as though the demands are too great, the disciples need something to encourage them. And Jesus, being the master, being the one who understands more than we can ever imagine, does something for them in Mark chapter 9 that lifts their spirits, that gives them encouragement, that gives them hope. What he does is this thing called the transfiguration. The transfiguration where the dazzling proof that Jesus Christ is indeed God and glory is to come. So this morning, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9, and we will work together through this passage to learn three lessons from the transfiguration that will encourage us. Now this lesson or this transfiguration left an indelible mark upon Peter. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 19, Peter wrote this. He said, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Peter's recounting seeing the transfigured Christ and the impact that it left on him. John, who was also there for the transfiguration, wrote in John chapter 1, verse 14, he said, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, This event, the transfiguration, is an encouragement to us this morning. And so let's learn three lessons from the transfiguration. Uh, We will use Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 10, but I also will refer to Matthew chapter 17 and Luke chapter 9, who also share this story. So hopefully we can follow along together with that. The first lesson we learn is that glory is coming. Glory is coming. Look at Mark chapter 9, verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Peter, James, and John. Remember, they were business partners in the fishing business. And Jesus said, come follow me. And the three of them came and followed them. Peter, James, and John. Peter was the leader. They had experienced many things with Jesus. Remember, it was Peter, James, and John that went with Jesus when Jairus' daughter was healed. When she was dead and she came back to life because of Jesus' touch, Peter, James, and John saw that Jesus was a victor over death. They also went with Jesus into the garden to pray, and they saw Jesus was surrendered to death. They were saying, yes, I, I give my life. I take this on. And now at this transfiguration, they are going to, to be able to see that Jesus will be glorified in his death. You see, this idea of dying did not sit well with the disciples. Uh, This idea that Jesus is going to die was too much for them. That's not a good idea. We don't want that to happen. Instead, we want to experience kingdom right now. Remember, that's what the Messiah was coming to do. He is going to uh, get rid of this occupying empire, uh, these Romans, and get us out from underneath the shackles of oppression. And we are going to be victorious because of this Messiah. But Jesus says, no, I've got a different plan. Before we can have the glory, I need to go to the cross. I need to die. I need to sacrifice my life so you can have an abundant life. This event 
is an astounding event. And, and Mark writes it so simply. Notice in verse 2 he says, he was transfigured. No adverbs, adjectives, or anything exploding around it. He just simply says he was transfigured. It's the idea of metamorphosis. What was on the inside came out. The divine that was inside was revealed. This word metamorphosis is familiar to you because of the, the caterpillar and the butterfly. The caterpillar is, disappears into the cocoon and then explodes out into this beautiful butterfly. So metamorphosis you've seen and heard before. And that's what Jesus does here. His hidden glory until this moment is now revealed. We get a glimpse of the glory that is coming. He was resuming that divine glory which was with him and his heavenly father together. That he had shrouded in in his flesh. He had hidden away so that he could be among us. J.C. Ryle writes this. He says, the corner of the veil was lifted up to show them their master's true dignity. To get a glimpse of the glory that is to come. Jesus says, this is what's coming. The clothing is dazzling white. Whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. The astounding look of the glory of God. His disciples get to see it. The disciples get a glimpse of the glory that is to come when Christ will come victorious over death. Uh, This glimpse of glory, it is this glimpse of power, of might, of success, of of this great splendor of Jesus Christ. Imagine at halftime, you're down 31 points. And you find out that, that this Jesus, this splendor, this beautiful, this marvelous, this strong individual walks in and says, I'm here. All of a sudden, 31 points looks like nothing. So too with the disciples. They are asked to deny themselves, to take up their cross, to follow him. And now they see this is the guy. This is our guy. He's the one. This glory is revealed. He's the one with whom we get to walk and we get to, to serve. It changes their perspective. It encourages their hearts. It's not like a halftime speech where, you know, you go on a tirade. It's not some sappy story of winning one for the gipper. It's this idea of Jesus and the glory that is his will be mine. And he reveals it. He gives them a glimpse of what is there. I have three sisters, and uh, they have grown children. And in the last 11 months, my three sisters and their Children have had babies, three babies in 11 months. We have two more coming in six months. So you can imagine at Christmas, there's a lot of baby conversation. And a lot of the baby conversation was, was centering around the, the sleeplessness, the dirty diapers, uh, the crying, uh, the being tired, the overwhelming feeling of the baby and all of those kinds of things. Remind you, you've seen the commercial. I have no idea what the product is, but there's this great commercial where, you know, first baby, the woman is sitting and interviewing uh, potential babysitters, and she's you know, checking their fingerprints, and she's rejected 50 of them. Second baby, she's walking out the door, hands it to the babysitter, and says, the number's on the refrigerator. Or, or you've seen the one where they're very particular and clean with the first baby, and the second baby, she's in the garage, and she hands the baby to the mechanic who's covered in grease. Right? You've seen that commercial. I have no idea what the product is, but that's the idea. You know, the first one... You're so consumed and absorbed with the moments of distress that you forget the payoff. You forget what's going to be good about having the kids. Uh, My mother is the voice of reason in our family when we get together. And she shares the stories about, you know, hey, you make it. It's going to be okay. You're going to survive. There is an end in sight. 
Don't get bogged down in looking at the diapers all the time. Instead, see the, the end that's there. And that's what Jesus does. He lifts the veil and he says, here is the glory that is to come. Don't be discouraged by being overwhelmed by what I'm asking you to do. Instead, be encouraged that I'm going with you and I'm the one that has the power and the strength and the might to carry you through. So stick with me. Stay with me. Deny yourself. Carry the cross and follow me. The glimpse of glory. The glimpse of glory that is ours because of the transfiguration. There's an old chorus that is oftentimes remembered, and it says this. It says, heaven is a wonderful place filled with glory and grace. I want to see my Savior's face. Heaven is a wonderful place. Keep in mind, the glory is coming. The second thing or second lesson that should encourage us is found beginning in verse 4. Christ alone is preeminent. Uh, It's it's important for us to see what's happening here. Look at verse 4 of Mark chapter 9. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters or tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. In verse 6 it says, he did not know what to say. They were so frightened. In Luke chapter 9, we find out that they had been sleeping. And they were awakened by this. Now, a couple of things about the sleeping. First of all, uh, the, the sleeping. Why were the disciples sleeping? I think, and I, 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 I'm not an expert in psychology, but I, I think that one of the reasons they were sleeping is they were so depressed. Think of the news they had just heard. The news they had heard was, we have given up our lives for this man, and he's going to die. That's heartbreaking. That's depressing. They needed a nap. They needed to rest. And so I think that's why they fall, f- fell asleep. You know, let's not be too hard on the disciples. The second thing is, they are now awake This is not a vision. This is not a dream. This is reality. They are seeing the transfigured, the metamorphosized Christ. They are seeing glory. They are glimpsing glory. They see Elijah. They see Moses. This is not a dream or a vision. They are seeing this in real time. And what happens here is Moses and Elijah are there together. You have Moses, the lawgiver. You have Elijah, who was the guardian of the law. It was Moses who delivered the law to the people, came down off Mount Sinai. Now, remember, when he came down off Mount Sinai, his face shone. And it shone so brightly that he had to put a bag over his head. Do you remember that? But please remember something. That was reflected glory. That was glory that he was reflecting from being in the presence of God. It wasn't his own glory. It was glory that came from a reflectedness. The glory that Jesus is showing is his glory. And it is so great that it reflects off of Moses and Elijah who are there. So anyway, so Moses is the lawgiver and Elijah is the defender of God's worship. He is the the prophet who was uh, protecting what was going on. Uh, He was the one that said, you know what, we're not going to worship Baal anymore. We're going to worship the true and the living God. And he went up on the the mountain and he had the prophets of Baal uh, present their altar. And they cried for days to have the sacrifice to be consumed and Baal never answered. And Elijah was making fun saying, oh, maybe he's asleep or maybe he's on on a walk. And then he says, okay, it's my turn. And he told them, uh, cover it in water, douse it in whatever you want, pour water and dig a trench and fill that with water. And then he prayed to God and God consumed it with a flame. That was Elijah being a guardian of the law of God. So you have Moses and Elijah. Both men were prominent mediators of God's rule to the nation of Israel. Both men were familiar 
to the disciples that were there. They were good Jewish men. They, they recognized them. Both men, Elijah and Moses, were now confirming to the disciples that Jesus Christ is preeminent. He is the one that has come to fulfill the law and the prophets. So whatever Moses and whatever Elijah has done, Jesus trumps it all. Jesus fulfills it all. Jesus takes care of it all. So what the lesson here is Christ alone is preeminent. The beautiful thing that's happening here is the disciples are being reminded that Jesus Christ is most important. Now, we, we, we hear what Peter does. Uh, Peter's reaction to the whole thing. One writer wrote this, and it was one of those half-rambling remarks which are forced up from the unconscious by the stimulus of great emotions. Peter just woke up, he's terrified, and he spouts out this idea, let's build three tabernacles. Let's build three dwelling places. Remember, the, the Jewish men, they understood tabernacle. Tabernacle was where God dwelt to be with them. But Peter is thinking beyond just the tabernacles and God dwelling. He's thinking, if we build three tabernacles and these three guys camp out here, there will be no death. There will be no cross. So we can have kingdom now. We can eliminate this cross idea and the dying of Jesus. And we can have what we need right now, and that's glory. And Jesus says, no, that's not it. That's not what we're doing. That's not how this is working. And his father, Jesus' father, will take care of that in just a moment. But what happened here is uh, Peter is trying to give them a human idea. The human idea is let's build three tents. The divine idea is Jesus is going to die. He is going to the cross. He is going to shed his blood for us so that we can experience the forgiveness of sins and then experience the glory that is to come with our Heavenly Father. These moments remind us that Jesus Christ is preeminent. We need to focus on him. We need to focus on his grace. We need to focus on his help. We need to focus on his ability to change us. Jesus Christ is the one that makes us different. Jesus Christ is the one that changes us. I think sometimes we've become too comfortable with our sin. To the point where... That's how we identify ourselves. That's how we kind of celebrate ourselves. We have this notion of brokenness equals authenticity. I'm a broken sinner. I've got this horrific temper, and so therefore I'm, I'm genuine because I just told you about that. Let's take the focus off of the sin, and let's take the focus on to Jesus, who deserves that position of preeminence in our lives who deserves that position where he is the one who we talk about most, who we talk about and celebrate because of what he has done for us. We talk about and celebrate Jesus Christ because he is preeminent. Now, I, I know, and you would agree, that sin is a necessary part of our story as redeemed people. We're sinners. But the most important focus is to think about Christ and what he has done and how he has saved us and celebrate what he is capable of doing in our lives, giving Christ the position of preeminence in our lives. Instead of celebrating what we were, let's celebrate what he has done for us to take us from where we were to where we need to be. Jesus Christ celebrating a position of preeminence. That is the lesson to learn and to understand. You see, we, we love the mountain. We love to camp out on the mountain with Jesus. But sometimes we've got to go through the valley of the shadow of death and he will bring us through 
to the glory on the other side. The lessons from the transfiguration. Uh, we get a glimpse that glory is coming. We get an understanding that Christ should be preeminent. And the third lesson is found in verse 6. And the third lesson is God demands obedience to Christ. God demands obedience to Christ. Now, I said this in the first service, and, and I don't, I'm not trying to hurt anyone's feelings, or I'm not trying to insult you. But in 21st century America, when you say demand and obedience in the same sentence, everybody under 50 goes, who does he think he is? Right? I mean, when you're old like I am, you're used to people telling you what to do, right? But it's a new day. How do I feel about this? What do I feel about Jesus and what God's going to say about Jesus? It doesn't matter what you feel. This is the truth. The truth is that God demands obedience to Christ. You say, that doesn't sound very encouraging. Stick with me. I'll show you why it's encouraging at the end. Okay? So hang with me. Don't turn off the switch because I use the word demand and obedience. Instead, hang with me and we'll get to the end and you'll say, okay, I kind of see your point, but I don't agree with you or I do agree with you. And that's okay. All right? So hang with me and notice what happens here in Mark chapter 6. It says the cloud comes and, and that cloud signals the divine presence and the voice of God. And the voice of God struck fear into the hearts of the disciples and they fell on their faces. And the voice from God says this, this is my son. This is my son. Now remember, Peter had said, let's build three. Let's build three tabernacles so that we can have glory now. Let's forego this cross. And Jesus starts, and God starts out saying the same thing Peter had said in Mark chapter 8. In Mark chapter 8, Peter had said, you're the son of God, you're the Messiah. So Peter's got to be feeling pretty good at this point, right? And then God goes on to say, listen to him in Mark chapter 9 verse 7. That's where Peter has a disconnect. Because what he's saying is, Peter, stop talking. <laughs> Peter, don't talk anymore. Instead, listen to him. Even when he says, I've got to go to the cross and die. Listen to him. Listen to what he has to say. God speaks and asserts that Jesus is his beloved son. And that what he has to say is important. You need to listen to what Jesus says. Listen to him. Not just look at him. Not just look at him. And sometimes we love to look at Jesus, right? What a beautiful, loving man that he was. All the things that he did, the miracles that he did. We love to look at that. We love to, to, to look and see what he did. But, but his heavenly father says, don't just look, listen. Listen to what God says through his son, Jesus Christ. Sometimes we love to listen to Jesus when he says things like, uh, all ye who are weary and heavy, heavy laden, come unto me and I will give you rest. We love to hear that. Uh, we love to hear, you know, uh, I go to prepare a place for you, and where I am, there you shall be also. We love those words from Jesus. We listen to those words. But then Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. Who does Jesus think he is? <laughs> Who does Jesus think he is saying that? Can't we just, can't we just take the, you know, the stress out of this? <laughs> yes, we can. You know how you take the stress out of it? By listening to Jesus. You see, instead of hearing all the things and listening to all the things that are around us, all the words and the people that are telling us things that don't make any sense, instead we listen to what Jesus says. And when we hear what Jesus says, we follow him. And when he tells us these things, we need to remember that he's with us. 
in Matthew chapter 17, verse 7, the account of the transfiguration, it says that Jesus came up, touched them, and said, get up, don't be afraid. Mark doesn't tell that story, part of the story, but in Matthew. You see, they were so terrified by the voice of God that they fell on their faces. And then Jesus came, touched them, lifted their heads, and they looked into his face, and, and he said, don't be afraid. You see, here's God just saying, listen to him. That's a golden opportunity for Jesus to say, come on, guys, you know, let's go and conquer the world. But instead, he touches them, lifts their head and says, don't be afraid. This isn't anything new for the disciples hearing Jesus say, don't be afraid. Remember the storm, the the disciples left early and Jesus is walking across the water in the storm. And what does he say to his disciples? Don't be afraid. It's me. You see, here's what's happening. God makes this demand for obedience. Listen to him. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. (laughs) Don't be afraid when God makes the demands. Because Jesus is there touching us, taking us, and saying, I'm going with you. I'm with you. I'm not leaving you to figure this out on your own. Instead, I'm here to walk with you, to go with you. They looked up and they saw Jesus only, the face of Jesus. There's an old hymn that is entitled, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. It was written by Helen Lamell. Helen Lamell was inspired to write the words of the hymn by the life of Lily Trotter. Lily Trotter was a wealthy woman who had learned to paint. She was a very good artist. She was such a good artist that one of the collectors who was encouraging to stick with art said to her, your work will become immortal. That's how great you are as an artist. But she had other plans. Instead of becoming an artist, in the late 1800s, she left the world of art and moved to Algeria to be a missionary to the Muslims. And when she was sharing her testimony, she had this word, these words in her testimony that Helen Lamel heard. I must fix my eyes solely on Jesus. That's what Trotter said. And Helen Lamel, a music teacher at Moody Bible Institute and a song leader for the Billy Sunday evangelistic campaigns, she penned these words. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. She says, O oh soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and light, life more abundant and free. And then at the chorus, it goes like this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. To whom are you listening? To whom are you listening? God demands you listen to his son. This morning, the transfiguration of Christ teaches us that glory is coming. The transfiguration of Christ teaches us that Christ is preeminent. And the transfiguration of Christ teaches us that God demands we listen to Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. And thank you that when you make us aware of what it is that you want, that you don't leave us to figure it out for ourselves. Instead, you provide us with your word that helps us to know how we should live and what we should do. Encourage our hearts this morning with the transfigured Christ. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Have a wonderful week.